if you're like me, and I hope you're not, but you process Scripture, I at least do, I process Scripture sometimes best by breaking down books of the Bible into thematic categories. Sometimes it just helps me process the flow of the book of the Bible. So you should note, as we get into John chapter 5, which is where we are this morning, that John 5 marks a new section in his gospel. If you were to generalize chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, the central theme focuses on the identity of Jesus, the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And in these four chapters, John starts to explain who the Word was. His name is Jesus, the Lamb of God, living water. Everything in these first four chapters seems to focus on expounding and explaining the identity of Jesus. But now that that John has accomplished this, chapters 5 through 11 seem to explore kind of a growing, budding opposition to Jesus. So if you're a note taker and you, and you like breaking down books of the Bible in categories, uh, one through four, the identity of Jesus, five through 11, the opposition to Jesus. Now, as I mentioned in our introductory study, and to a large extent, it demands repeating. One of the fundamental differences between this last gospel and what's called the synoptics, the first three, is that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke intentionally set out to provide a written historical record of events. John, writing much later, he writes instead with a particular intent. He's not as interested in providing a historical record the other three already have. Now, it's always important as you work your way through the Gospel of John that you keep in mind that he gives for you the stated purpose for his narrative. He explains to you in his conclusion why he writes his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30, this is what John says as he's concluding things. He says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, referring to everything else, the previous 19 chapters, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Unique only to his gospel is that John specifically intends to provoke a decision from the reader. The gospel of John, unlike the other three, demands a verdict from you. It demands a response. From his account, John wants you, he says it up front, he wants you to believe or to place your complete faith and your total confidence in two important truths about Jesus. He says it. One, that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? That he's the Messiah. Okay, what does that mean? That he's the long-awaited Savior of the world. The only one that can save you from your sins. And the second reality that John writes wanting you to accept is that Jesus is the Son of God, which makes his sacrifice acceptable. That he's God made flesh. He's not just a prophet, not just a a great speaker, not just a moral authority, but he's God incarnate, the God-man. These are the two reasons that John sets his narrative, which means that absolutely everything that John includes in this gospel pursues the accomplishment 
of those two very specific aims. You might say that while Matthew presents Jesus to the Jews, saying, Behold the king. And Mark heralds him to the Romans as, Behold the servant. While Luke declares to the Greek, Behold the man. It is John who unashamedly shouts to all that may hear, Jesus, behold your God and your Savior. Not only is John honest as to his intent, which I appreciate, that he's deliberately seeking to convince you of these two important truths about Jesus, but but he adds something else that's worthy of attention. He adds that in doing that, in trying to convince you of these two things, John is hoping, quote, that you may have life, have life in his name, in the name of Jesus. John not only invites the seeker to believe in Jesus, which makes the gospel of John kind of seeker-friendly, but he also wants the believer to consider the obvious and logical ramifications a faith in Jesus should manifest from their life. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, your Savior, and your God, so that you may have life, and that more abundantly. It's seeker-friendly, but it's Christian-centric at the same time. Well, we're in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. We're told that after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheet gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the water, the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. After this, how John 5 begins, implies that sometime after Jesus healed the nobleman's son, which is the end of John chapter 4, that while Jesus here, he's hanging out in Galilee, that he decides to go to Jerusalem, specifically to celebrate a feast of the Jews. Now, admittedly, This transition from one story to the next is rather vague. Not a lot of details here. Not only does John fail to tell us how long after the events in Cana that Jesus decides to head to Jerusalem, but our author fails to even name the specific feast that necessitated Jesus make the journey in the first place. The truth, no one knows what feast Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate. And, And honestly, for John's purposes, the purposes in writing, including this story, is that neither point matters. For what occurs at the pool of Bethesda, once again, John not writing for chronology, but for purpose, for intent, for theme, what happens here at the pool of Bethesda perfectly illustrates both of the two lessons that John has just established in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, we have two stories. We'll unpack this a bit more later. But two stories, the woman at the well, living water, as well as the healing of the nobleman's son, not based on his obedience, but based on his grace. Now, we will unpack that larger point at the end of the study, which I do find to be totally amazing. But I think it's best for us to maybe 
begin here by working our way through the activity of the text. Like, what is going on? Now, right from the jump, I don't know if you feel the same way as I, but I think we could agree that what's happening, at least what John is recording, taking place at the Pool of Bethesda, is at a minimum perplexing, if not downright bizarre and strange, right? Now, John sets the scene by giving us the locale. He says that in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool, which is called in the Hebrew, Bethesda. And then he adds that this pool had five porches. As far as the geography is concerned, if you were to exit the temple complex and you were to head north into the city of Jerusalem, you would naturally use, this fly is killing me, you would naturally use the Sheep Gate if you're heading north out of the temple complex. Now, now, the Sheep Gate was not a gate that you would use to enter and exit the city of Jerusalem. Instead, it was an internal gate you would use to enter and exit the temple from Jerusalem as you passed through the Sheep Gate, which was a gate, by its very title, used to bring the sacrifices into the temple for the altar, As you exit north, to your left would be the fortress of Antonio, and directly in front of you would be the pool of Bethesda. Now John continues here by explaining that this pool possessed five porches, and that in these porches around the pool lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, and then our author quickly adds Uh, the explanation or the reason that they're waiting for the moving of the water, telling us that an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water so that whoever stepped in first after the stirring was made well of whatever disease they had. That's craziness. Obviously, the initial pressing question, was there or was there not something supernaturally occurring at the pool when the water stirred? Or could it possibly be that this was something uh, but a bit of mythology, that it was something of a kind of a cruel superstition that had developed folklore, a ruse? Was this really happening? That's the question, right? Now, I'll concede that you can't be dogmatic either way, but I'm of the opinion that, yes, something absolutely supernatural was occurring at the pool of Bethesda. John records, look at it, he records that at a certain time, an angel sent from God came to the pool and stirred up the water, and then he says, as very specifically, so that upon the stirring, whoever was in first was healed. Now before you think I'm crazy for believing that this was actually happening as John records, consider two points. First, John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there is absolutely nothing within the original language of our text to indicate that John was skeptical that this was indeed happening. The way he records this text is a matter of fact. Like, we all know this is what was happening. Aside from this first point, the second is simple. If you believe the Old Testament is also a divinely inspired record of God's dealings with humanity, then such a scene as what, we, as what appears here at the Pool of Bethesda isn't all that far-fetched. Like, think about the Old Testament. Like, God brought 
animals to the ark in groupings of two. Abraham and Sarah, who were old, conceived. That doesn't often happen. You have ten plagues in Egypt, Moses parting the Red Sea, God supernaturally providing manna from heaven. In the Old Testament, you have a story of people being healed of a poisonous serpent bite by looking at a bronze serpent raised up on a pole. You have an account of the sun standing still. You have the story of an ass speaking to Balaam. And if you don't think that's a miracle, imagine the one that speaks behind this pulpit every Sunday. You have Naaman being cured of of leprosy by, by dipping in the Jordan River seven times. You have a dead man, a story of a dead man who comes back to life when he's accidentally thrown into a crypt of Elisha's bones. You have Jonah surviving three days in the belly of a fish, Daniel in the lion's den, the three amigos, and the fiery furnace, right? I mean, if you can see that the Old Testament records some crazy stuff, then what's happening here at the pool of Bethesda, it's not that unbelievable. In a much larger sense, if you believe that in the beginning God created, if you've already gotten to that point, then you logically concede that God exists outside of the natural order so that we might so that what we might perceive as being supernatural is in actuality very natural for God in the beginning God who existed out created so he created a natural order now yes God can't contradict this natural order but he can absolutely supersede it why not he created it Obviously, the pool of Bethesda wasn't magical. It wasn't like fairy dust. Like it didn't possess some type of healing power intrinsic to itself. But note, that's not what the text is claiming, is it? You see, John tells us that at a certain time, what happened? God decides to get involved. And he sends an angel to stir the water and then a unique miracle occurred. That's what John tells us, tells us happens. Like Not only does this miracle naturally fit within a book that records the acts of a supernatural God, but the motivation for the miracle, like why this would happen, you know, to me, it totally is consistent with what I know of this God. Like, don't forget how John sets the scene. He tells us that here at the pool of Bethesda was what? A great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And you know what? God loved these people. He loved them. They were his people suffering the terrible effects of living in a fallen world. And beyond that, in many ways, people with such afflictions as described here were utterly hopeless. The people lacked health care, medicine, even concern. Most of them, by default, would occupy the bottom rung of society. They would be beggars. Can I see a situation where such a healing by God, such an event, such a moment, is both actual and literal? Absolutely. Fits within the Old Testament. It fits with what I know of God. Now, imagine the crowd. Imagine the crowd. Imagine the scene here around the pool of Bethesda. Like, John doesn't tell us that there were just like a few people there. He describes a great multitude. He can't even count it. 
All five porches of this pool were filled to the brim with the sick. The Greek word that we have here translated as sick literally means to be feeble or without strength. Whether it was on account of blindness, which is one of the things articulated here, and that's an interesting word. The word blindness, it not just describes a physical blindness, but the word can also describe a mental blindness. So not only do we have people here that can't see, physically blind, but also probably those that we're dealing with with mental retardation, things of that nature. You also have the, the lame, lameness. In the Greek, this word describes someone who is lame because they were maimed, because of an accident of some kind. And, and then there were those who possessed a form of, of paralysis, that they couldn't move, they, they, they had these issues. Like these people, this, this crowd, this great multitude, they were utterly powerless. And, and that scene, if you picture it, man, to me it's heartbreaking. It's grievous because it presents just a stark view of sin's effects on humanity. Now, while John doesn't provide us any additional information about this certain time the water would stir, like we don't know if if this took place daily. We don't know if it took place once a week, like on Tuesday. We don't know if it happened during this specific feast that's not named. Or if it just happens sporadically. Like he doesn't tell us anything about a certain time. But we do know that this mob of suffering people are likely jockeying for position. So that when this event does happen, when the water were to stir, that they have a chance of getting into the pool first. You can imagine the rising tension, the anxiety. For these people, this is their only hope of healing. Their only chance to have their life restored. And it's in such a scene that John continues his account of the story. Verse 5, he tells us, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Though John only uses a few words, I'm, I'm struck by such a sad description. A certain man waiting desperately for a certain time when he might possibly experience an unlikely healing. If only the man could muster enough strength to be the first into the water. Well, we know nothing of the man. John doesn't give us his name, family history, tribe, vocation, age. John does tell us, though, that he had an infirmity 38 years. In the Greek, this coupling of unaffirmity is rather telling. Not only does this mean, the, the word infirmity meaning uh, that he was want of strength or possessed a feebleness of health, but the, 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 the word uninfirmity implies that these things, the results, had come from some tor- sort of internal malady or a disease. Like my point, is that the phrase indicates that the man hadn't been born with this sickness. Instead, he had contracted it. Like At one point in his life, keep in mind, this man had been fit as a fiddle. And yet over time, 38 years to be exact, his vitality and his health had been robbed by this infirmity 
leading him now to this very desperate place. As we'll come to see, things had deteriorated so far he could no longer walk. Later in the story, in verse 14, Jesus makes this statement to the man. He says, see, you have been made well, which, spoiler alert, that's, that's where it'll go. But then Jesus says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, we'll unpack that more next week. But, but many scholars believe that this statement made by Jesus confirms the fact that the man's infirmity, that this weakness, his decline in health, had been the result of a venereal disease he had contracted through immoral living. Just a theory, but the text does seem to make that kind of type of implication. And, let's just say if that's the case, it adds a new wrinkle to the scene, doesn't it? Like, not only was the man tormented physically, but you can also reason that he was suffering an affliction of the soul, which may have been worse. Like, think about it for a minute. As this man, laying here at the pool of Bethesda, looks around at the great multitude around him, no doubt he saw men and women who at no fault of their own were there because they were born with a condition. It wasn't their fault. They'd just been dealt a bad hand. I'm sure as the man laid there that he also took notice of people who were at the pool because they had been lamed by an accident. Once again, no fault to their own. But unlike these people, this man knew that he found himself in such a plight because of his own stupidity. Well, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Yeah, I, I wonder how long Jesus stood there outside of the sheep gate to the right of the fortress. of How, how long he stood there observing the scene at the pool of Bethesda. Like in a sea of so much human suffering, I'm left wondering why Jesus only singles this one man out. It's a struggle for me, but, but I wonder why Jesus didn't heal all of them. Why just this one man? Especially when so many needed help. But regardless of that, from the flow of the, the verse I find what happens here deeply profound. Just in a, in a summary, the, the words I'm struck by are that Jesus saw him, knew, and then said. To me, that's amazing. This translation, that he knew that he had been in that condition a long time, that, that's a bit misleading. In your Bible, it's likely that the words in that condition are italicized. And the reason they're italicized is that the translators want you to know that those words were added to the text for clarity, but weren't in the original manuscripts. Those three words, in that condition. Well, I'm sure that Jesus knew the man had been suffering from this infirmity for 38 years, which is what I think the translators believed. And it's more likely... I believe John is telling us that seeing him lying there, Jesus knew he had been lying there a long time. That the in that condition is, is misleading. 
Now, I, I know I'm speculating, but I think it's entirely possible that the reason Jesus singles out this one man was because this one man had spent more time than anyone else at the pool of Bethesda, that he was kind of the veteran of the group. It's hard to imagine a dynamic where someone could have survived in the first century with such a condition for 38 years. I mean, if the healing, if Jesus is healing here intended to make a splash, no pun intended, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better candidate than the guy that's been there for 38 years. Which imagine, for year upon year upon year, this man went to painstaking efforts to get himself to the edge of this pool only to have someone else beat him into the water. For years, this man's best attempts had fallen short, right? For years, his hopes had been dashed. Why? Because he wasn't quick enough. He wasn't able. And it's with this in mind that Jesus, he saw him. He knew what was going on. And he knew he had been there for so, so much time, for so long. Then Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? Now, honestly, what an audacious question for Jesus to ask such a man in such a condition. Like, I mean, why else would you be at the pool of Bethesda if you didn't want healing? Why else would this man have tried so hard for 38 years? Do you want to be made well? Duh. So if, if, the, if the answer is so obvious, we should consider why is Jesus asking such a question? Now let me un unpack what he's saying, kind of working backwards. Let's take the question, let's work it backwards. In the Greek, this word well, do you want to be made well, can be translated as whole or sound. And, and, and this is important. The word implies not just a removal of the disease that was inflicting him, but a complete reversal of the effects that he had experienced from having such a condition. There's another scene in Scripture where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And it wasn't just that whatever caused his hand to be withered was reversed. His hand was as whole as the other one, which is a, a, kind of a misconception about Jesus' miracles. The leper that comes at the end of the beginning of Mark chapter 2, imploring Jesus to heal him. What's interesting is that the text implies that Jesus didn't just remove the leprosy from him, which would have been great, but he would have been left a shell of himself anyway. Jesus removed the leprosy, and then the, the effects of the leprosy, boom, gone. This is what the word means, do you want to be made well? It's not just do you want that infirmity gone, do you want how that infirmity has destroyed you reversed? That's what Jesus is asking. Working backwards, consider the implications of Jesus' use of this phrase, to be made well. To be made. By its very definition, what Jesus is proposing is a work that would commence in the man's life, how? Independent of the man's specific involvement. Do you want to be made? To be made implies you're not doing anything. Now, this man, he understood, right, by just being at the pool of Bethesda, that any miracle, it would occur supernaturally. 
That's how people were made well by getting into the pool, right? But the dynamic at Bethesda still demanded his activity, his energies, his effort, his motion, his ability to get there, right? Yeah, the healing happened independent, but he still played a role. And yet what Jesus is saying here, to be made, is that he would have no role. He wouldn't have to work. It wouldn't happen at all predicated upon him. You see, for a healing to occur at Bethesda, the man's ableness and ability was required, but that's not what Jesus is asking here. Uh, Finally, notice the essence of the question, right? Do you want to be made well? Do you want? Jesus doesn't ask the man, do you need to be made well? That was obvious. Nor does he ask, are you able to be made well? That was also obvious. He couldn't get into the water. Instead, Jesus asked something I think is fascinating. Do you want? Brilliantly, Jesus is speaking to the man's desire. It's as though Jesus is asking him, do you really want healing? Like, do you really want to be made whole? And by implication, have you just maybe grown comfortable in your present condition? Do you want your life to change? Or do you find comfort in your misery? Do you really desire the status quo or radical transformation? And the reason I think that's important is that sadly, I have found some people never experience wholeness, healing, for one reason. Deep down, they really don't want it. Whether they think they deserve their misery or they've just grown comfortable by their misery or the prospects of change just freak them out, some people do answer the question, do you want? No, I don't. Whether they verbalize it or not. Now, verse 7. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, how very interesting that in response to a question centered on desire, the man points to his activity. It's as though his reply to Jesus is is as this. Do I want to be made well? Yes, absolutely. I'm tired of this condition, tired of this life, tired of my misery. I'm tired of laying here. Why else would I be here waiting for the water to stir? But that's not all he says, right? He also says, look at it, I have no man to put me into the pool. Yes, I want to be healed. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. You see, in this statement, the man is affirming something that is not just sad, but it's, it's a brutally true confession. It's as though he is saying, yes, Jesus, I want to be made well. But don't you see? It's impossible. I want it, but it doesn't happen for me. No matter how hard I try, Someone always beats me. I always come up just a little short. Jesus, don't you see? I want to be healed. I'm just not able. I see this statement. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. I I, I see that as an appeal. I don't have a man. Here's my prediction. Could you help me? The man falsely believes his only hope, his only chance of getting into that water first was Jesus helping him. 
What the man doesn't realize, though, is what? Jesus didn't need to put him into the pool for the man to be made whole. Now, in fairness, he has no idea who Jesus is. And from his perspective, getting into the water first was the only way he could think of that his needs could be met. But sadly, he was misguided, right? I think that there's kind of a lesson there because sometimes we get ourselves so wrapped into one solution to our problem. One solution. When we don't look beyond the fact that Jesus trumps it all, right? If I could just be more financially secure, that would solve all my problems. Or, or maybe Jesus could. Or I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. If I could just have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or just get married, it would solve my problems. I'm married. It won't. It creates a whole new set of them. But Jesus can't. Like The point is, is this man was so focused on, if I can just do this, I'll be fine. And he brings that to Jesus. And Jesus is, I think, chuckling like, <laughs> I don't need to put you in the water, man, to do what you really need. So verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And then we're told in that day was the Sabbath, which we'll get to next week. Now, I'm grieved when I hear commentators say that the man was healed the moment he attempted to obey the command of Jesus to rise. I can't tell you how many people I heard say that. They will even add that Jesus asked this man to do the impossible, specifically in order to demonstrate that he could do the impossible if he was willing to trust in Jesus and try his hardest. I can do all things through Christ. Why in the world can't we let Jesus be awesome without demanding some type of human involvement? Like, why can't we read a story like this and just be amazed and blown away at how awesome Jesus is? Not try to work in some other explanation. You see, what's off about this interpretation of the passage is it's not what the passage is saying at all. Like, look again at the text. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. Then he took up his bed and walked. Follow me here. While the second and third directives correlate, right? You see, you see the play on words here. Take up your bed. So what did, what did he do? It correlates. He took up his bed. The language correlates. And then the third directive is, and walk. And, and then what happens? We find another correlation. He walked. Notice, though, that Jesus begins by issuing a first directive. Rise, and what's the correlation? The man was made well. You following me here? Like, clearly, the collection of his bed and the walking were the result of what? A healing that the man played no role in doing. Like once again, part of the problem here is a faulty understanding of this word rise. In the Greek, the word that we have here 
is agerio, which is a verb. And it's a verb that, that literally means to ra- arouse or to cause to rise. Like, please understand. As an impossible command for a man in this condition, the word is more than a directive. The word itself also carried with it the power to fulfill the directive. The man couldn't rise. Please know that. That was impossible. He couldn't do it. In attempting to calm John the baptizer's fears about his true identity, Jesus relays this message recorded in Matthew 11, verse 5. He says this. Oh, John's freaking out. Just go tell him. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are, cl- are, are cleansed, the deaf hear, and then, and then note, and the dead are raised up. Same word. Same word. Luke 8, verse 54 and 55, we're told that Jesus took a little girl who was dead by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came back, and she arose straightway. You see, the word agirio, it doesn't compel one to action. It causes one to act. Let me, let me give you an example. When you go to a Falcons game, and you hear Samuel Jackson, right, over the loudspeaker, command the crowd, rise up! What do you do? You hear the directive, you put down your nachos and beer, and you stand to your feet and start cheering. But note, that's not what the Greek word here, rise, is describing. If the same word was used in that context, this is what would happen. Rise up! Not only would you get up, put your nachos and beer down, and start cheering, but the handicap section of all the people in the wheelchairs also are getting up and cheering. As a matter of fact, if this word was used in that context, you could try to stay seated. Guess what's not happening? You're not staying seated. You're getting to your feet. The word has the power to command an action. Rise. Guess what was this? Guess what was happening? It didn't matter if he was trying or if he had this energy. This, no, he was going to rise to his feet. Specifically, The word that Jesus is using means to recall the dead to life. The dead. The dead don't play a role. The little girl arise, and she arose. And what immediately resulted when Jesus used this word? Something he did? Something he tried? Something he attempted? No, not at all. John says, Jesus said rise, and what resulted? Immediately, the man was made well or whole. Sure, he actively obeyed the second and the third directives, right? Took up his bed and walked. But he did those two things only after Jesus had done something within him, something for him. What this man at the pool of Bethesda could not do through his own energy, his own efforts, healing, restoration, How amazing Jesus accomplished it with one single word. Rise. On a side note, if one word of Jesus possesses that amount of incredible power, 
just speculating, spitballing here. But if just one word has that kind of power, imagine if you were to like compile a whole book filled with his words. Like what kind of power that book might possess. What it could accomplish in you. As I mentioned at the beginning of our study, John is more interested in the development of a theme rather than providing the reader with a strict chronology. As such, it would appear John specifically transitions from the events of chapter 4, the woman at the well, the healing of the nobleman's son, not because it's a chronology, but he transitions to this particular story at the pool of Bethesda because it perfectly illustrates the two themes he's just introduced to us. Let me explain what I mean. For starters, John's setting the scene by mentioning that this pool of Bethesda possessed five porches. Kind of an odd detail, right? But that's totally bizarre. For a pool to possess five porches was totally unusual. Because pools in the ancient world were fundamentally four-sided. Simple construction. Logically, you would figure such a, a structure would have what? Okay, if there's four sides, it would have four porches, not five. And for centuries, by the way, scholars dismissed that detail as an unhistorical literary addition. Well, they accepted it as such until the bull of Bethesda was finally excavated in the 19th century. And archaeologists discovered, yes, there was a rectangular pool, four sides, but that this pool was divided into two basins, separated by a dividing wall that ran through the middle that acted as a dam. Incredibly, they found that the pool of Bethesda had four porches situated on the outer perimeter with a fifth on this dam that divided these two distinct basins, just as John described. Now, why does that matter? The reason this detail demands our consideration is what it tells us about the purpose of the pool of Bethesda. It would appear that this pool, it wasn't used for drinking water, to, to collect rainwater. Instead, the pool of Bethesda had a very specific religious function, which explains its close proximity to the sheep gate and the temple. Archaeological excavations have revealed that the southern basin of the pool of Bethesda had broad steps for entry. But the northern basin, not so. As a matter of fact, it just was a deep reservoir. This tells us that the pool of Bethesda was actually what's known as a mikvah, which was a bath used for religious immersion and ceremonial purification in Judaism. A mikvah. Imagine a mikvah as just a Jewish baptismal that pilgrims would go to and wash in before entering the temple to worship. Now, according to Hebrew tradition, in order for a pool to be used for the purposes of a mikvah, ceremonial purification, the mikvah had to be sourced with running water that would either come from a natural spring or a river. In a dynamic where neither were available, a two-basin structure like the Pool of Bethesda was permissible because of its construct. The southern basin 
was continually replenished with a fresh flow of water from the northern reservoir. In a profound way, the pool of Bethesda had religious significance because it provided the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, with this fresh water. You know what they called the fresh water? Living water. Essential for purification. Living water. Huh. Remember that in his interactions with the woman at the well, Jesus offered her something radical, right? Something the world couldn't offer, something religion couldn't offer, something revolutionary. He offered her living water that would permanently quench her inner thirst. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst because the water I give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. I imagine John with quill and pen as he's marinating on this promise that Jesus made to all of living water that he's struck by the contrast provided by this scene at Bethesda. See, the pool of Bethesda was the closest version to living water that Jewish religion had to offer. But as the scene so starkly illustrated, it was terribly inadequate. Imagine, outside the temple existed a pool advertising living water aimed at purifying. And yet, tragically, it only provided this great multitude of the sick who were forbidden from entering the temple in their state of uncleanness. Nothing more than an empty, false hope that if they tried hard enough to get into the water, they could be healed. For John, this man with the infirmity was the prime example. A man that desired a healing that never came. Let down after let down after let down for 38 long years. He had tried his best, but that living water had failed to no avail. To the point that he had conceded that healing, at least at that place, was impossible. And yet, After an encounter with Jesus, this man would never have a need to go to the pool of Bethesda ever again. You see, what religion, his efforts had failed to yield in his life, Jesus brought to fruition with one single word. You don't need to get into that pool. I am living water. Rise, right? And it's in that moment that a religious ritual became obsolete, the moment he encountered Jesus. But you know, I don't think that's the only reason that this story is relevant in light of chapter four. While in Cana of Galilee, Jesus radically transforms the noble man's life. And we addressed this. And it wasn't by, the the healing of his sick son didn't come because of his obedience. The healing of the child came before his obedience. As we've discussed, it was the demonstration of God's grace that ended up not just healing the boy, but saved the man and his whole household. And it's that truth that I'm convinced draws John's mind back to Bethesda. Not only will Jesus' actions at the pool of Bethesda dovetail off his dialogue with the woman at the well about living water, but it's a perfect segue from his interactions with the nobleman. The word Bethesda, 
The word Bethesda possess two meanings. While bet is translated as house of. The suffix hesedah, Bethesda, had two different meanings, one in the Hebrew, one in the Aramaic, both common languages. In the Aramaic, Bethesda was translated as house of shame. But in the Hebrew, the word means grace. Bethesda is the house of grace. One, one commentator remarked that this dual meaning may have been thought appropriate. Since the location was seen as a place of disgrace due to the presence of the, of the sickness and as a place of grace due to the granting of healing. Can you, friend, think of a better place for Jesus to contrast the living water that he provides, that he offers, with the knockoff afforded by religion than at the pool of Bethesda? People in shame arrived at Bethesda, desperate for a grace that never came. So what happened? Jesus specifically came to those in shame to offer a grace that changes everything. As we close, I ask you to consider, how are the effects of sin reversed? Like, how can the dead spirit within find itself awakened to life? How can you be made well? Let me answer. While you're in the midst of your brokenness, experiencing the external results of that internal killer named sin, probably pursuing remedies that don't work or religious rites that fall woefully short, completely lost and at this juncture desperate, I want you to know Jesus sees and knows. And he steps into your life this morning, often unsolicited, to ask you a very simple question. <laughs> Do you want to be made well? Sure, like this man at the pool of Bethesda, you need to desire more than the status quo. A man who fails to search will discover nothing. Beyond this, you will need to be honest that the things you've been pursuing to save have failed. You'll need to admit that you aren't able. And apart from being made, well, you'll never experience the change you want. And yet, this is what's important. Do not be mistaken. In the end, the miracle occurs the healing takes place, life change happens. Not when you muster the energy to obey the impossible commands of God. But the moment Jesus speaks into the depths of your soul and says, rise. Friend, the key to experiencing the amazing grace of God boils down to one central thing. You saying yes when Jesus asks, do you want to be made well? And so if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. If